0: Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, we'll read verses 45 through 50 and then we'll jump over to John 19 and read one verse, then after that from Luke 23, you should see those references behind me. Matthew chapter 27, start with verses 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Turn over to John chapter 19. We'll read from verse 25 down to verse 30. John 19 verses 25 through 30. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine onto a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... So thankful for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, for the marvelous gift of your scriptures. I pray today as we contemplate the further details of Jesus' crucifixion and and his death, that you would be honored and glorified as we contemplate such a sobering topic, and yet such a joyful one as well. We pray this. In your son's name, Jesus, amen. Be seated. The overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're given an indication of what it is that's within a man by what it is that comes out of his mouth. What he talks about and how he talks about it gives us at least a glimpse into the values, the priorities, the goals, the pursuits, the affections of a man. Our words provide a window for others to see into us somewhat. Certainly when our time comes near to an end, when death is knocking on our door, our words give an indication of the things that are closest to our hearts. This morning we're going to consider Jesus's last words, but before we do I'd like to mention some of the last words of some other people. We hear regret in the words of George Best, who is an Irish so- professional soccer player. He said, don't die like I did. This same man had been recorded earlier as saying things like this. I've stopped drinking, but only while I'm asleep. He said, in 1969, I gave up women and alcohol, but it was the worst 20 minutes of my life. We hear exhaustion in the words of Benjamin Franklin. As he lay dying, it was suggested that he turn to his side to make his breathing easier. And he said, a dying man can do nothing easily. We hear unfinished work in the words of Huey Long, governor of and senator from Louisiana. He said, don't let me die. I've got so much to do. We hear fear in the words of John Belushi. Don't leave me alone. Chris Farley saying similarly, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. We hear denial and or foolishness in the words of Charles Darwin. I'm not the least afraid to die. By contrast, we hear resolve and purpose in the words of missionary Jim Elliott. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We hear peace in the words of Richard Baxter. I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. We hear security in the words of John Knox, live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. We hear joy in the words of Augustus Toplady, I enjoy heaven already in my soul, my prayers are all converted into praises. We hear quiet trust in the words of Lady Jane Grey, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We are completed work and expectant hope in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. For I am already poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved His appearing. Do you see the contrast? What made such a difference in the lives of these Christians? We can say in a word, Jesus. Yeah, I heard it. Jesus, that's right. In fact, their last words mimic the last words of our Savior and Lord. And so without further ado, we're going to consider the last words of Jesus today. We've already encountered the first two sets of utterances that he spoke uh, while on the cross. And we're going to consider five more. There are seven in total. In a sermon entitled, Last Words. I want to group these seven statements of Jesus into three categories that we'll consider one by one together this morning. The first are those words that are compassionate considerations. The second are those words that are woeful words. And the third are those confident calls that Jesus makes at the very end of his earthly life. Let's first of all consider his compassionate considerations and as I mentioned last time we've already looked at the first two of these because we've gotten about halfway through Jesus's crucifixion or what's referred to as nearly the first three hours first of all Jesus made intercession remember as he's being nailed to the cross Jesus says father forgive them they know not what they do we read this in Luke 23 34 father forgive them for they know not what they do While he's being nailed to a cruel cross... ...and having abuses hurled at him... ...Jesus is praying that his Father forgive them. He prays for the very ones who are mistreating him... ...the very ones who are rebelling against God. And as I mentioned last time we were together... ...in this this text together... ...I said thankfully this is the case. If Jesus were not to pray for those rebels... ...then there would be no hope that he pray for us. We too are rebels... ...rebelling against God... ...we too are guilty of mistreating Christ. We too are in need of the forgiveness of Jesus. And the good news is... ...is that there is forgiveness for all sinners... ...who will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus lived and died... ...so that forgiveness could be extended. Secondly, we see Jesus in Luke 23... ...verses 35-43... through 43, ...interacting with a thief on the cross... He says to this man, today you will be with me in paradise. After being crucified, Jesus was taunted by people... ...telling him that if he was truly the Son of God... ...then come on down off the cross. Then one of the criminals crucified next to Jesus... ...joins in the taunt. The hero's abuse of Jesus as well... ...telling him, save, save yourself... And then after that he adds, and us too, you know just in case... ...just in case you actually get down off the cross. And us too. But the other criminal on the other side of Jesus... ...rebukes the first criminal saying, don't you even fear God... ...since you're under the same sentence of condemnation... And we indeed justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Here's another of those occasions in which Jesus' innocence is being proclaimed by everyone around. Remember, Judas, after betraying Jesus, says, I betrayed innocent blood. Nobody can find anything against him. Pilate's like, there's nothing, that no charge sticks. And meanwhile, on the trial goes and all the way to... Crucifixion. But again, we see this a criminal on the side of Jesus saying, This man hasn't done anything wrong. How dare you taunt him? We're here because we deserve it. We've done wrongdoing, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. He rightly recognizes Jesus' innocence. And then he asks Jesus, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Here, this man expresses faith in Jesus' coming kingdom, a kingdom that would come. Even through the cross. This man evidences God's grace is operative in him. Because God has given this man eyes to see Jesus' glory. Even in the midst of Jesus' most... you know, ...hugest amount of humiliation... ...this thief sees that this man is innocent. And he calls now upon Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. And there he is on the cross dying. To the rest of the world it looks like as if... ...what kingdom is there for such a man? But this man... ...on the one side of Jesus, given eyes to see by God the Father... ...sees that this is truly the innocent, spotless Lamb of God... ...and he asks that Jesus remember him in his kingdom when it comes. He sees his own sin, right? He said, we're guilty of why we're here, but this man is innocent. So he sees Jesus' goodness, he sees his own sinfulness... ...and then he recognizes Jesus' righteousness... ...and the fact that he's coming with a kingdom... He wished here to cling to Jesus. And even here in these last moments of his life, we see Jesus speaking words of assurance to this man. Words of assurance. He interceded for, those, for all of us. And now here he speaks words of assurance to this, this criminal on the cross. He assures him that this very day you'll be with me in paradise. Not some coming day, but today. Today. Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, we come this morning then to the third set of these compassionate considerations and maybe we group this under the word care. Jesus says from the cross, "Woman, behold your son, and behold your mother." We read this in John chapter twenty-nine, verses 25 through or sorry, John 19 verses 25 through 27. Now, Jesus turns his focus from other criminal on the cross, to now those who were standing below the cross, those who had drawn near to the cross. And he sees a few women, and he sees the disciple whom he loved. These words are only recorded in John's gospel. Again, further evidence that this disciple who remains unnamed in John's gospel is most likely John himself, right? This is a (laughs) reference to John. John doesn't use his own name. Perhaps John, who had been present in the high priest's court, had run to tell news of these happenings, of what was going on with Jesus, to these four women who had been close to Jesus. Jesus' mother, Jesus' mother's sister, Mary of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And now they all, as a group, grew, grew close, grew, grew near, drew near to the cross. Matthew and Mark also make a list of women who were there. He says that there were many women there, but then they... List a few in particular and say that they were some distance away from the cross. And this is their references to these women happen after Jesus has given up his spirit. So they're further away at that time. Probably there's some milling about. Remember, this whole crucifixion scene lasts about six hours. So they're milling about. They've gone a little bit further away, but it's interesting to note the names that are mentioned. Mark 15, 40 and 41 says, Some women were looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and, and the Less and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Again, Matthew 27 lists them again in verse 55. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now if you put together these three accounts, John's account, Mark's account, and Matthew's account, of the listing of the ladies that are there, um, you come up with an interesting potential connection, and most theologians have made this connection, that Jesus' mother's sister, whom John doesn't name, he says Jesus' mother was there, his mother's sister was there, and then he names two other individuals, that this mother's sister of Jesus, whom John doesn't name, is most likely Salome, the mother, who's also referred to then as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, who are the sons of Zebedee? John is among the sons of Zebedee. This would fit with John's habit of not mentioning himself or his brother's name within his gospel. So again, the one lady other than Jesus' mother that he doesn't name is Jesus' mother's sister. Again, this would follow along with the course for John... ...as he tries to kind of keep himself and his family, um, their names out of his own account. If this is the case, that would make John Jesus' cousin and Jesus' mother's nephew... Now this makes further sense of what Jesus is about to say to them. He entrusts Mary to John. Now typically care for a mother, we assume that Joseph is dead by this point. We don't have any specific reference in the Bible but Joseph is just no longer in the story. And so again, obviously if Joseph was still around, he wouldn't have to entrust his mother to someone else to take care of her. But the question is, why doesn't Jesus entrust her to his brothers? As we know that Mary after having Jesus did have other children. So why doesn't why doesn't he entrust her to them? Well, quite simply, we know from John 7, 5 that Jesus' brothers were at this point not believers in Jesus. They had rejected Jesus. Now, we know that changes because then when we get to Acts 1, verse 14, we find that the brothers are there praying with the disciples um, regarding Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection. But at this particular moment, John becomes a really practical as well as spiritual Uh, ...good reason, good person for Mary to be entrusted to. Jesus looks down. He sees John and his mother. He looks to their present needs. He ensures that they have one another emotionally... ...but also that Mary's physical needs would be provided for by his beloved disciple... ...which would be, if this construction is correct, also her nephew. If this is not further proof of the absurdity of Rome's doctrines about Mary... ...I don't know what there is... The Roman Catholics tend to see an emphasis uh, here... ...of John coming under the care of Mary. Behold your mother. And they'll make a big deal about this... ...then all Christians could look to, to Mary as their mother. But it's interesting because if you look at it historically... ...it's quite the opposite. It's Mary who enters into John's home. Jesus told Mary to look to John first... ...before he told John to say, this is your mother. His point is, John, take care of my mother... Meanwhile, he says, Mary, this is now who's going to be watching over you and protecting you. She needed care and protection from another. She was just a woman whom God chose to carry his son Jesus, which was certainly a high honor, but it doesn't mean Mary didn't get that by meriting the position. She needed Jesus to save her just as much as any of us need Jesus to save us. She's in no way to be honored as divine, She's in no way to be prayed to, to be worshipped, or to be trusted in. We've spoken of this before on other occasions in, in the Gospels... ...where we've come across interactions between Jesus and his mother. But So I'm not going to take a lot of time to, to reiterate all of that. But I just want to at least say this, just so I at least have made the statement. Rome's teachings regarding Mary's immaculate conception... The, ...her assumption into heaven bodily her role as co-redemptrix, and therefore an important uh, intermediary in prayer, all of those doctrines are patently unbiblical. And not only do you not find any information regarding that in the Bible, but the Bible would speak against those conclusions from being drawn. So not only does the Bible not speak to those things, but whenever it does speak to anything even close to this, it is quite different than what the Roman Catholic Church teaches regarding Mary. Quite honestly, I think Mary herself would be appalled... ...at the things that are taught about her. Noticeably absent from these lists of Matthew and Mark... ...following Jesus' death is Mary. Note, when Mark and Matthew recount the lists... ...Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not present... ...as one of the ones that's listed. It's kind of a big one, a big who's who to leave out... ...if she was still present when Jesus actually died. Now, if you take what John has said here... Quite literally, John nineteen, verse twenty-seven, and from that hour this disciple took her into his own home. It is quite possible that John actually escorted Mary away from the cross. To be sure, what was prophesied concerning her had already been sufficiently fulfilled. Luke two thirty-four, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. ...and a sword will pierce even your own soul... ...to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I agree with Edersheim. He said this. As they stood under the cross, Jesus committed his mother to the disciple whom he loved... ...and established a new human relationship between him and her... ...who was nearest to himself. And calmly, earnestly, and immediately did undertake the sacred charge... ...and bring her away from the scene of unutterable woe... ...to the shelter of his home." In all of these first sets of words, though, from Jesus... ...while he is there on the cross... ...we see tremendous compassion. While in the midst of horrendous suffering... ...Jesus is thinking about others. He prayed for those who were nailing him to the cross. He gives comfort to a penitent thief... ...and assures him that today you'll be with me in paradise. And now here he makes last, makes last provision of love... ...for those who are nearest to him. Aren't we just utterly amazed... ...at the selflessness of Jesus the complete self-forgetfulness of Jesus, the other-centeredness of Jesus. I mentioned um, some time ago what an impression was made on me when I was attending my grandfather's um, the, the, the funeral of my grandmother. And as my grandfather is there mourning the loss of his wife of some 67 years, as the minister who was um, officiating the funeral was coming up the aisle my grandfather stopped him to ask him. And I was sitting close enough to hear what he asked him. He said, how is your daughter doing? There's my grandfather in the midst of mourning the loss of his wife of some 67 years. And there he's concerned about the minister's own child who had been in the hospital recently. It made such an impact on me. It's like if there's ever a moment when someone would be more self absorbed and no one would give them any flack for it, right? Nobody would be like, oh, how dare you not remember that my child was in? I mean, nobody would even think that. And if they did, it'd be like really off the wall crazy, right? And meanwhile, there's my grandfather thinking of the minister and his family while we're attending the funeral for his wife. That to me is just such a glimpse of Christian love, you know, self forgetfulness, caring for others. Around us. And at this point when Jesus is going through the most horrendous sort of suffering. The first three statements he makes. Are all in reference to others. All in reference to others. What compassion. What care. I mean you really can cast all your cares upon him. For he cares for you. Now darkness falls on the scene. From the sixth hour which we know is around. Right at noon until the ninth hour around 3 p.m. When Jesus gives up his spirit, darkness covers the land. During the brightest and hottest part of the day, darkness blankets the land. When Jesus was born, the night sky was filled with supernatural light. As the glory of the Lord shone around to those... Hillside shepherds, and a star shone brightly in the sky for wise men to travel from the east a long distance to come and find the one born king of the Jews. And now, as Jesus suffers and dies, darkness falls on the land. As many note, there's no way this could be a natural eclipse. There's several reasons for that. For one, the Passover happened when it was a full moon, which, if you know anything about, ...where the moon's position and the sun's position... ...that would put the moon on the other side of the earth... ...not between the earth and the sun... ...but on the other side of the earth. So it couldn't have been an eclipse like that. For another reason, the darkness there... ...lasted for three hours. No natural eclipse ever lasts more than a few minutes. So there's no way that could have been for three hours. It also couldn't have been merely a local phenomenon... ...for we're told that darkness covered the land. And some ancient sources even suggest... ...that the darkness was spread beyond Jerusalem and Israel... How far the extent, we're not sure. It was as if all of creation is mourning as its creator suffers. It's as if creation itself is gone into mourning as its creator suffers. The sun is like draped in a veil. It makes us think of the ninth plague in Egypt, which lasted darkness upon, upon Egypt for three days. It sounds much like Amos 8, verses 9 through 10. Listen to how... Specific, this say, this comes. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. A little bit further in verse 10 he says, it will be a time of mourning for an only son. Interesting. Darkness is often linked with darkness. Second Peter 2.4, God casts rebellious angels into hell and commits them to pits of darkness. Jesus in referencing hell and the place of torment and punishment eternal torment and punishment for all who don't repent of their sins and believe in Christ describes divine judgment as the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here in the darkness while in agony Jesus utters some more words. We come to point two. Some woeful words. The first of these words of separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. These are the only words which Matthew and Mark record from Jesus' time upon the cross, but these words are hugely significant. Many standing by mistakenly think that Jesus is calling out to Elijah, and they're saying, let's look to see if Elijah comes to rescue Jesus. Now, there was a lot of belief regarding Elijah, since he was, remember, taken up by a chariot and all the rest, so there's a lot of belief within Jewish culture that Elijah was going to come back. Remember, there's even discussions about this earlier about John the Baptist. You know, is he Elijah? Are you Elijah Jesus? This whole question is coming. And so when they hear this, Eli, Eli, they, they think, oh, he's calling to Elijah, let's see if... Elijah's going to come and save Jesus. And this could have been, some might have been honestly curious and others might be mocking him further. Yeah, sure, Elijah's going to come and rescue you, Jesus. But Elijah couldn't save Jesus. Quite the reverse. Elijah needed Jesus to save him. Just as all of us need Jesus to save us. In order to redeem us, in order to save us... ...Jesus must take on our flesh, fulfill all righteousness... ...and then die in our place. Jesus, though now, would experience what he had never before experienced. He would experience spiritual death. And spiritual death is this broken communion with God. And as Jesus suffered in the stead of sinners... ...he would be treated as if he committed our sins... ...although he was perfectly holy... He willingly offered up himself in our place and became the propitiation, the wrath satisfier for our sins against God. And as God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, we read Habakkuk 1.13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Listen to the. Listen to the call here from Habakkuk. Why are these, in his context it was, you know, why are you being silent when the wicked are having their way and the righteous are suffering under the wicked? And meanwhile, what a much more full application of this, right? How is it possible that Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, should suffer? How can you, O Father, be silent while the wicked have their way with the righteous sufferer? But the answer is that our salvation is only possible because this is the means by which God ordained to deal with his own son, Jesus. The moment, though, in which Jesus bears our sin for for us means that God the Father must look away. His eyes are too pure to approve evil or to look on wickedness. And so as he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteous of God in him. As in Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. At this moment, there is an abandonment. This is def- There's definitely a mystery to this transaction. Others have commented, God forsaken of God. Who can understand it? Yet can I just say that there are a great many other things that I cannot understand either? And that doesn't make them untrue. It just demonstrates my finitude. There's deep mystery here. These words arose from more than physical pain. It's spiritual suffering that Jesus is undergoing. He's bearing the weight of sin. He's being the sinner's substitute. He's being made a sin offering. He's becoming a curse. He's receiving God's righteous anger against sin. And as the iniquity of us all was laid upon him, it pleased the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. Isaiah 53. How do you get your hands around such a thing? There, truly, there is no analogy that really comes close. And Hendrickson offers one that I, he, he, he believes that might help us slightly. And I mention it just quickly. Imagine a scenario in which a little child is very sick. ...and must be brought to the hospital... ...and placed in the intensive care unit... ...where his parents cannot be. They still love the child... ...but the child would experience anguish... ...in missing his mother and father... ...who of necessity must be away... ...that it will ultimately turn out... ...for good. I think he's right to say that his analogy... ...doesn't come close to really expressing... ...the depth of what's going on here. There's a part of this that is a mystery... ...that's unexplainable... ...and nothing comes close to it. Jesus as our mediator... ...calls out to his father... ...but he's left to suffer alone. In some sense, the father still loves the son... ...and the son loves the father... ...yet since Jesus as the mediator becomes sin... ...he must be abandoned and crushed... ...as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. This will ultimately result in God's glory... ...for the father will not allow his son to undercoat a K. He'll raise him up from the dead... ...and bestow on him the name above every name... ...that is the name of Jesus every... Knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And he will present to him a people for his own possession. Remember, Jesus knows where he's headed. He just told the thief, what? Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Also note that Jesus, when he cries out with these words, they are the words that begin Psalm 22. This is what we had read this morning. If you didn't have numbers to psalms, how would you reference them? How do we reference praise songs today? Do we say song number 55? Maybe if you had hymnals, you would do that. But even there, how do we most likely reference songs? By their title, right? And quite a few songs' titles come from the first lines of the song. How would you reference Psalm 22 if you didn't have numbers attached to them? You'd reference them this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalm is identified as a psalm of David. And I'm sure on one level these words are the expression of his own heart and descriptive of some sort of circumstances that he was encountering at that time. But these words also speak to David's greater son. And they describe in great detail what Jesus would indeed encounter at his death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning... Verse 7, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. It's exactly what they said to Jesus. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd... ...and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death... ...for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them... ...and for my clothing they cast lots... Do I have to point out all the points of fulfillment there? In a day when crucifixion was unknown... ...it describes the crucifixion of Jesus in stunning detail... ...a thousand years before it happened. A thousand years before it happened. It describes dislocated limbs, a failing heart... ...terrible thirst, pierced hands and feet... ...being encircled by dogs or Gentiles... ...gambling over garments... ...and the mockeries that he would encounter... Yet this was the cup which Jesus must drink if we were to be redeemed. This was the price that was required that God remain just and be the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We who were separated from God, having a broken communion with God. We who were separated from him needed a perfect substitute to pay our penalty, to be our scapegoat, to be... ...our Passover lamb. We needed God himself to save us. And he did so by sending his son... ...to take his righteous wrath upon himself... ...and to remove our guilt. We needed also new garments... ...of perfect righteousness to be given us... ...to cover our nakedness... ...and to cover our shame. Jesus himself bore our sins... ...in his own body on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 And he died for sins once for all... ...the just for the unjust. 1 Peter 3.18 becoming the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. Jesus would take the curse upon himself. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised that we might be made well. He was broken that we could be made whole. He was abandoned that we could be found. He was rejected so we could be accepted. He took our sorrows so we could enter his joy. Jesus died alone, completely forsaken... ...so that we might never be alone. And then Jesus makes another set of woeful words... ...very plainly, uh, words of suffering. I thirst. I thirst. Is this not incredible to think... ...that the one through whom all things came into being... ...the one who gives living water has parched lips. We're reminded here that Jesus was made like us in every way, yet without sin. He experienced the genuine human condition and creaturely emotions and desires, joy, love, hunger, thirst, sorrow, and pain, to name a few. But John also tells us why he said these words. He didn't just merely say, I thirst in order to relieve some... um, thirst that he had he tells us that the scriptures might be fulfilled when Jesus was being brought to be crucified he was offered wine mixed with gall but he wouldn't take it it's thought by many that this was a means of painkiller and he refused it as on his way to the cross but here in obedience to his father's will and in fulfillment of prophecy he merely speaks I thirst and instantly sour wine is offered to him ...even this thirst was prophesied. Again, Psalm 22, verse 15... ...my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Perhaps even more clear, listen to this... ...Psalm 69, 21... ...they also gave me gall for my food... ...and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. It makes sense that Psalm 69 would be the reference for John here... ...because he's already referenced it twice in his gospel. He referenced it in John two seventeen. His disciples remember that it was written... ...zeal for your house will consume me. That's in Psalm 69. He also said in John 15, 25... ...they have done this to fulfill the word... ...which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. That's Psalm 69, verse 4. So here again, a third reference to Psalm 69. Jesus here saying... ...this was to fulfill what was written... ...would happen. Jesus thirsted on the cross... Ultimately, that we might be able to drink from the water of life and thirst no more forever. Once Jesus gets a sip of that sour wine, referred in some, in some translations as vinegar wine, he speaks his last words with a loud voice. One is a general statement to all, and the other is a final prayer that he makes to his father. So let's note these final two confident calls, confident Calls. The, the first is a call of fulfillment. It is finished. And what's beautiful about that word in Greek is it's one word. To <laughs> Tetelestai. To It's just one word. One word in Greek. It denotes completion, fulfillment, victory. Jesus could say, it is done. It is over. The work you'd come to do is now finished. Finished. His earthly ministry had come to a close. The righteousness required had been fulfilled. His suffering was complete. Nothing had been left undone or unborn. He cried with a loud voice and he announced his victory. This was not a victim uttering a final plea. This was a conqueror declaring triumph. To tell us, it is finished, it is done, it is complete. The term tetelesthi also has economic significance in the Greek world. Dwight Pentecost notes, the term signified the completion of a transaction by the full payment of a price, or the discharge of a debt by a completed payment. All sin incurs a debt which the sinner owes to God. The debt must be discharged before the sinner can be accepted by God. You ever gotten one of those beautiful... Maybe it's usually red stamps. They stamp it on a bill and says, paid in full. Anybody paid off a loan, a long-standing loan or a debt? Isn't it a beautiful feeling to be out from under that? Like that thing is done and gone, right? There's no longer a debt against me. It is paid in full. It is taken care of. Well, all of the Old Testament sacrifices, all of the days of atonement that were happening year after year after year, were really just foreshadowing the real atonement that would be made in Christ. The blood of goats and the blood of calves could never really take away sin. When Christ died, he gathered to himself the collective accumulated debt of all sinners whom God would save, and he made payment in full for all of their sins. Certainly Jesus came to teach us, yes. And certainly he set a perfect example, worthy of imitation. Yes, we can learn from even the statements that Jesus made on the cross. Absolutely. There's example stuff there. There's love to learn from him. All of that is true. But he ultimately came to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, that's why I came. To give my life as a ransom for many. He died to pay our debt. He redeemed a people for God's own possession. And it wasn't a... A potential hypothetical people... ...he actually died for his people... ...and he saved them. He died for their sins. He took away their debt. It was cancelled... ...and taken care of forever. Pink says... ...all things have been done... ...which the law of God required. All things established... ...which, which prophecy predicted. All things brought to pass... ...which the types foreshadowed. All things accomplished... ...which the Father had given him to do. All things performed... ...which were needed for our redemption... Nothing was left wanting. The costly ransom was given. The great conflict had been endured. Sin's wages had been paid. Divine justice satisfied. What blessed words. Jesus' declaration is what gives us hope today. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross... ...we who were alienated and estranged from God... ...under a curse are now brought near... ...and were reconciled with God the Father... This is why, as Christians, we're not fighting to victory, but from it. Jesus, our champion, has already fought in our stead. He's already accomplished a conquest that we couldn't win. He suffered and died to wipe out a debt which we could never cancel on our own. Nothing more need be done. And nothing more can be added. It is finished. Salvation is not the joint work between God and man. It is solely the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And it is that way, such that we would not boast. It is a gift from God from beginning to end, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus then utters words of trust. And he speaks one final prayer to his father. Luke twenty three forty six records it. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Jesus here bows his head and he gives up his spirit and he offers this final prayer. Again, a quotation from Psalms. This is Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. It's an original, it's original context there in Psalm 31. The words were the expression of a psalmist... ...who is wishing to be delivered from his enemies... ...and trusting his fate is, meanwhile, in God's hands. Well, Jesus is the most excellent example of a righteous sufferer... ...and as he faces death, he can trust God to take care of him. Jesus here laid down his own life. No one took it from him. And as we know, and we'll see in coming weeks... ...Jesus also had the authority... ...to take his life back up again. See John 10, verses 17 and 18. The point is... ...that neither Judas Iscariot... ...nor the Jews... ...nor Pilate... ...nor the soldiers... ...nor Satan... ...took Jesus' life from him. Jesus willingly offered up his life. He died voluntarily in the place of sinners. And he gave up his soul... ...entrusting it to his father. At no point did Christ cease... ...from being sovereign. He's sovereign over death and life. No one else has ever died this way. No one else can say... ...I died as a, as a, as a matter of volition. Only Jesus died as, in this way. Everyone else dies... ...as a result of the wage... ...of their own sin. But since Jesus died and rose again... ...we too can entrust our souls... ...in life and in death... ...to our Heavenly Father... ...in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, while God the Father did not spare his son from death, and quite the contrary, was pleased to crush his son as he became sin, and therefore the object of his holy wrath, the Father would not leave his Holy One to suffer decay. Soon there would be blessed vindication. And just as Psalm 22 ends in a triumphant note of God's deliverance, so does the story of redemption. Jesus would defeat death. ...by dying and rising again... ...and thus give all those who are in him... ...the secure hope of eternal life. You see, death would not have the final say. Jesus had the final word. In the words of the great hymn... ...I will sing of my Redeemer... ...and his wondrous love to me... ...on the cruel cross he suffered... ...from the curse to set me free. I will tell the wondrous story... ...how my lost estate to save... In his boundless love and mercy, he the ransom freely gave. I will praise my dear Redeemer. His triumphant power I'll tell how the victory he giveth over sin and death and hell. Sing, oh sing, of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so, so thankful that it is finished. Jesus... Thank you that it is finished. Thank you that it wasn't just something where you worked halfway and the rest was up to us, because if it was, there'd be no hope for us. Our efforts are futile, our strength is feeble. We're spiritually dead without you. Thank you for this wondrous salvation. Thank you that we can rest fully in Christ. Thank you for the security that we have in him. Thank you that we no longer have to fear death if we're in Jesus. Thank you that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, Father, please this morning, if there are any in this place who have pushed you away, have lived a life of wanton ungodliness, have, would recognize their sinfulness, would see your innocence, would recognize what you did upon the cross, what you accomplished, what you completed. I pray you give them eyes to see. They would call out to you. They would cry out to the one and only Savior and Lord Jesus. May you do this this stay all for your glory and for your kingdom's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.